This week's episode is brought to you by Patchworks Seattle, our lovely little scent shop here in the Pacific Northwest. But you don't have to be from the PNW to shop at Patchworks. You can check out their website at patchworks.com. I'd also like to say thank you to Needham Woodworks, the finest Euro rack cases in the land. If you don't have one, well, what are you doing? What are you? <laughs> Head to needhamwoodworks.com and uh, remedy that, why don't you? Hello and welcome back to Podular Modcast. My name is Tim Held, and I'm very excited to have Nathan Moody on for the third time. Nathan has become a friend of the show and a friend of mine over the last three years. And um, we have him on this week to discuss the Hyperlab Omni uh, soundtrack. We're going to get into that. It's a pretty cool podcast that I've been, uh, I'm actually listening to it just a few minutes ago as of uh, the time of recording this. I'm on like episode six, so um, highly recommend it. Um, and he does mostly generative music for that for the soundtrack, and you're going to get into why that is. Um, so I figured, hey, why don't you kind of give us some uh, some tips on how to create generative music, and then his patch challenge that he's going to do at the end of the show is going to be a generative piece. So lots of information. There's an educational aspect to this week's episode, so I'm pretty excited about that. The song that you heard before the theme song at the opening of the show was actually by the artist who made the theme song. It was the Animals at Night, and uh, that's my buddy Greg over at Recovery Effects, released a new EP called Swimming in the Ice Arena, and that is the title track off of this EP. And each track was made with uh, a surge system that uh, that Greg actually built. He uh, he built all the modules and whatnot. So um, so this track is also from, from that. Um, uh, so I highly recommend it. It's, it's good stuff. I feel like so much has happened since I last talked to you all. Um, I think we, I rushed through the last few intros, and a lot of cool stuff has happened in, uh, in the pod mod world. Um, I'll just say I got a Fender Jazz Bass. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. Um, I've been practicing. I've been trying to practice, you know, at least an hour a day, but sometimes I get a few hours in a day. Um, so... Yeah, hopefully we'll be seeing some uh, some more cool bass stuff happening in my live performances. Speaking of live performance, I will be doing one uh, for the Peaked San Francisco show, uh, and that's going to be March 17th. Um, really excited to, uh, to share that with you. It's actually the first uh, remote performance I did with the bass. Um, so be on the lookout for that. I got some new modules in the case. Uh, I got the Parallax and the Vertex from Warring Instruments, and uh, we're going to take a little listen to the Parallax filter here uh, in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to say thank you to everybody who supported me on Patreon, um, past, present, or future. You help to keep the LEDs blinking over here at PodMod, and uh, yeah, it's just very much appreciated. And a lot of new people have signed up this year. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people have dropped off as well, so we're kind of still at a plateau. So... I want to get 200 this year, so uh, if you're somebody who's maybe been thinking about doing it, this is where I just put my hands together and tilt my head to the side and make a kind face and say, please, will you help me? Patreon.com forward slash Podular Modcast. Let's get into this demo. 
The Parallax is a stereo filter designed with a classic sound, a simple, friendly interface, lots of modulation options, and two flavors of output. Designed to bring your modular system into a stereo world, Parallax is a pair of filters for your left and right signals, which are controlled with common stereo controls, as well as controls to skew the cutoff and resonance in the stereo field. Parallax is perfect for making synth patches from stereo sources or for taking a mono signal and making it stereo. So that's what I'm doing in this patch that you're listening to. This is just a little drum sample that I made. I've got the dry signal buried under there. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why here in a moment as I drop that out. Um, but I'm controlling the two different frequency modulation inputs and the skew. Um, so just check out the cool stereo stuff that starts happening with this signal. So uh, yeah, like I said, this is a mono signal going into the left. Um, it's got a negative 12 dB uh, stereo pair output and then a negative 24. So um, that's pretty cool. I like that. Uh, I'm using the negative 24 right now. So yeah, I am, like I said, modulating the uh, frequency skew and the two frequency uh, modulation inputs. Okay, so I'm gonna unplug all this modulation really quick. So frequency skew, straight up. I'm gonna put everything at noon. So you can hear, it's like a low, low pass now. So that's the skew, just turning all the way to the right, turning all the way to the left, frequency. Turn to this, this got some really nice. Turn the resonance up to like three o'clock. Oh, that's beautiful. That's the skew again. Um, so yeah, I'm only using like half of the uh, CV in options here in this patch. So attenuators for the CV inputs, that's always really nice. So there we go, plug some CV back into them. There's even a um, frequency skew. Let's plug, a, let's plug a nice fast LFO into the frequency skew. And then a slow LFO into the resonance. So that's the resonance frequency skew is what I just entered something into, by the way. I'm going to turn up my LFO speed. I'm using the oct, so I've got uh, all sorts of different uh, speeds of LFO happening right now. dry signal back underneath. Kind of like some R2-D2 drums or something. And hell, let's run that dry signal through the data bender just to make it sound really, really, really cool. Yeah, so this is just like a really, really simple look at the Parallax. Um, I, I just got it, so I, I'm, I'm just figuring it out, but this was like kind of the first thing that I did with it that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so we're going to dive into that more because uh, I have a feeling that this, this thing's going to be pretty powerful. Warren is just so good at doing stuff with stereo that I'm, I'm really excited, especially since most of my recording I do is just uh, two stereo pair out. So I'm, I'm hoping that... Uh, that this will gel nicely to add uh, a lot of character to my future patches. In fact, the patch that I use, or the, the patch that I made for the upcoming Peaked San Francisco show, I do use the Parallax in. 
Um, and once again, that is March 17th. Okay, let's chat with Nathan Moody. Oh, man. Well, it's good to, I mean, see you in the closest capacity to seeing each other we can these days. Last time I saw you was here in Seattle when you were leaving. I think you were literally, like, on your way out of Seattle and stopped by uh, Lowercase Brewing. And we had a couple beers. That was really cool. Oh, um, so good. And I can't so wait to do that again. But we have chatted Seriously. since. I chatted with you and Ben a while ago about your your collaboration on the um, uh, Dead Space. Was it Dead Spaceman or Dead Astronaut? Uh, dead Astronaut. Yeah, yeah, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Dead Spaceman. Um, <laughs> but as usual, you've got a bunch of stuff going on. So I figured we would get back together. As, as we said uh, before we started recording, get the band back together. Um, yeah, and I've I've been doing this thing this year. We're having I'm, I'm having repeat guests, and now three, four P. I think this might be your fourth time on. Is this your fourth or third Oof. time on the show? I think it's actually third. I I heard my name used in vain when James Sigler was on <laughs> uh, talking about uh, talking about Patch the Card Game, which I illustrated. But oh, he that's designed. right. Okay, right. Um, so I think this is number three. Okay, we'll call it number three. Well, it's a three peat then. Um, <laughs> How have you been? I've been shockingly well, thank you. Yeah. Um, things have been busy. Um, things have been really productive and also creative. Um, lots of interesting projects, stretching myself as an artist in new directions. Um, on the mastering side, uh, Obsidian Sound is working with broader and broader clients, um, you know, I just finished a big project for the estate of Allen Ginsberg. Oh, wow. I'm uh, where, you know, Sonic Youth got to flow through my desk for a day. That what? was a real, oh, that's cool. a real treat. Um, and uh, then I'm uh, probably going to be working on a couple of mastering projects for some game companies for their soundtracks for their games. And, and then, of course, where I kind of really call my home is the modular community and continuing mm -hmm. to do a lot of work uh, for independent electronic artists. So, yeah. so yeah, keeping busy, staying safe, staying off the streets. Yeah. <laughs> I get a lot of cassettes and a lot of Bandcamp download codes come across my desk, so to speak. And it's been awesome to see your name constantly, almost just the constant flow of mastered by Nathan Moody. Um, so congrats on that. And it makes sense. It's like you're, you already, you're, you're well-established as knowing how to handle kind of this, this, this dark corner of music that we all <laughs> we reside in. Um, so yeah, that's just really cool. I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's been great also to see that uh, in the last four or five years, um, just lots and lots of repeat clients coming back. Mm -hmm. And so one of the joys I get out of being a mastering engineer, of course, is always the the thrill of the new, working with new clients, working in genres I'm maybe less conversant in and having to become an expert mm. in that stuff really quickly. Mm -hmm. That's always fun. But there's there's just such camaraderie uh, working with, uh, with repeat clients mm -hmm. where you start to develop a shorthand and, you know, some, some, a sense of humor and stuff like that. And that just kind of humanizes the whole thing. And definitely. So both aspects I find really, really rewarding. Yeah. I kind of get that. And that's another reason I'm really enjoying these, having these repeat guests, um, same kind of the same reason forming, forming these, these friendships with people and, and being able to hit the ground running in a conversation. 
um, that's, you know, for selfishly, it's not as one-sided. I love interviewing and I love getting, getting to know people who, um, you know, I've, you know, taken an interest in like whether, you know, their work or their modular or stuff or their music or whatever. Um, but it is also nice just to chat with a buddy. It really um. is. <laughs> Especially during these pandemic times, Definitely, you know, it's yeah. just, we're, we're all just so starved for, for social contact and just any excuse to just have a nice soul stare with someone, you know, right, it's, just right. in, it's, you can't put a price on that. No. And you know, it's, I, I have noticed, um, and I'm curious how this goes with you because I know how busy you are, um, I, you know, the, the pandemic has obviously changed a lot of people's lives, their, their social lives dramatically. And I would say that mine has probably been less, uh, less affected than your average person because I was spending a lot of time, you know, most of my, a lot, most of my conversations were had in the same way over Zoom because I was interviewing people in different countries and different states. Um, you know, so other than going to shows, I don't, really have that much of a difference in my, my social interaction. And, you know, cause a lot of my social stuff, um, or at least, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Extracurricular activities. Uh, was, you know, nature driven, which is kind of like not, not a whole lot of people and, and you're the same way. So I'm wondering if you've had a, that was my really long winded way of saying like, <laughs> is that the same way that you've been feeling? <laughs> um, dude, really, really similarly. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's, what's unusual in having become a mastering engineer separate from being a sound designer as I have in the past and still do from time to time or a musician. Um, now my activities are really tied to the room I am in right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I sounded like Alvin Lucy or there. I'm in a room. <laughs> um, and it's because, you know, I have to have these monitors and this acoustic treatment and this analog hardware to do my best work. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, exactly one mastering engineer out there who does work on the road. He uses in-ear monitors and he just knows them so well. He knows how it's going to translate and, uh, and it works for, for him. But uh, as a result, I have now spent about four or five years just working out of this studio. Mm -hmm. And so I don't need to... Uh, necessarily play gigs. It's fun, but it's not what I do for a living. Uh, like you, Tim, mm -hmm. nature is my uh, is my sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So I get outside whenever I can. Uh, and that's also how I get, uh, ironically, that's how I get isolation. Maybe not from people, because <laughs> we're all isolated from people and that's bad. But that's how I just isolate myself from like not checking email, yes. specifically being out of cell phone range. And just checking out on the weekends mm -hmm. is just really important to, for me to draw those boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, of course I do miss going to shows, playing shows. I miss just being able to have a beer with a colleague and talk shop. Mm -hmm. uh, but as, as you've uh, suggested, it takes some discipline and practice to actually say, hey, if we can't go get a beer let's talk every week on zoom for an hour mm -hmm. or, um, you know, one hour a month. And that really has helped kind of keep a lot of those relationships going and it's not optimal, but it's what we have to do. And it's certainly better than the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird doing the, the podcast over zoom because sometimes I'm, I'm like a little reluctant to ask somebody, Hey, do you want to spend more time on zoom? Uh <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm getting used to it. And you know, it's it's funny you mentioned phone calls. Like I've probably talked on the phone more hours in the last year than I have, mm. you know, maybe since I was like a teenager, um, back when landlines were a thing and I didn't have a car. So the only thing you could do was hang out on the phone. Um, and I've enjoyed it. It's, it's, I, I'm, I don't know, like, cause you, I feel like you, you know, the world went to texting, everybody did everything through text and then to, to settle up on brunch plans, it's, you know, it's, it's past lunch by the time you've had the correspondence, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Um, yeah, asynchronous <laughs> texting is definitely a lot slower than real time. Yeah. Just like, meet me here in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it used to be like someone would call me. I'm like, oh, why didn't you text me first? And I know. I'm just like, yeah. Ooh, someone's calling. Who is uh, yeah. it? Hello? 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 I'm here. I'm here. Let's talk. <laughs> so I want to talk about your uh, your kayaking because I love I love when you're posting those pictures as a, you know, as a, a fellow nature lover. I just like it's so beautiful, the places you go and what you get to see when you're out there. Um, and recently it seems like you've done some pretty long, long day outs. Like how far are you going on these, these, some of these adventures? Oh, a lot of the, uh, longer kayak trips I've posted on social media was leading up to just this past Sunday mm-hmm. when I did 38 miles in one day. Oh, um, and that was, it was all training for that weekend. It's this uh-huh. endurance event that we call the Gonzo <laughs> and it's not a race because everyone does it at their own pace. And mm-hmm. the only, only th- thing anyone cares about is trying to finish. And I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So the goal is time it with a currents because that's the only way you'll get it done. And literally touch all 15 islands on the inside of the San Francisco Bay in one day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, from really well-known ones like Alcatraz and uh, Alameda to lesser-known ones like the Two Brothers of Two Sisters, the Marin Islands, blah, 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 blah. So... Um, I'm, I'm really glad to be sit, sitting down talking to you right now because <laughs> most of me still hurts two days later. How long did that take? Uh, ten and a half hours. So this is pretty much a sun up to sundown thing. I mean, just you're doing uh, some in yeah. the dark in the winter. I, I imagine. Are you starting we, in the dark? We, I started in the dark. Yeah, five, about five thirty in the morning. Okay. Um, but we finished uh, ahead of w- what we thought we'd do, and. Um, we saw a gray whale underneath the Bay Bridge and nice. saw a coyote on, uh, on Angel Island. So like just even cranking out the miles and like really having a bit of a suffer fest, you still have these just unbelievable moments of, you know, a full moon illuminating everything so much you don't need a headlamp. Right. It was a full and moon this weekend. Yeah, it was. And then, you know, the sunrise coming up as you're paddling, it's just like, it's, these that, are moments you're not going to get any other way. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and that isolation that you're talking about getting into, you know, nature, the nature version of isolation is just like so resetting. And it's, it's amazing how it, for me, and this, I imagine it's similar for you because this is what makes nature lovers love it so much. It's like when you're in the office and you've got the emails and you've got the deadlines, everything feels so urgent and big and, oh, and then you mm-hmm. get out there and you're just like, oh yeah, no, nothing, no, nothing matters. <laughs> <laughs> in the best way, in the best way. Like I was on Vashon Island this this weekend, actually in Puget Sound. Ooh, so we were both on yeah. islands in our pers- our respective bays. But that moonlight, just that full moon on, and watching the tide go out and everything, it's just like, yeah. Now now I'm I'm writing a uh, Hallmark poetry or something. But <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I love about the ocean, being a sea kayaker, is that it's you have to give up 
a lot of what you want to do to what the ocean demands I that bet. you do. Yeah, yeah. So you know whether it's where you go or the rate at which you take a paddle stroke. Like you have to vary it based on what the ocean's doing, and that's I I think kind of why I still love modular after all these years. You know, mm-hmm. you've got this system that you can interact with, and you build the patch, but it just you know. So many people have said this over and over again, but it really does seem like sometimes you set up these things, it, events happen that you don't expect, mm-hmm. and it's up to you as an artist uh, as to whether or not that was a mistake or an opportunity to lean into right. and engage with it and see where that leads. And, and I, so yeah. that's kind of how I tend to look at the ocean, too. I imagine with both, the the more experience you have with it, the 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 better you are at handling those those uh unplanned for events and yep. and taking advantage of those things that that's a cool analogy um because i tend to kind of like i don't know it's 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 not that i try not to think about modular and nature um but i kind of just forget about the modular when i'm out there but i have been getting into field recording lately and mm-hmm. i've been doing this thing where i plan routes like a loop um and so I did, I did this loop while we were on Vashon Island. It was around the beach. There was a road next to us, and then I walked through the backyard and crunched grass and then went through the house where people, my, my wife and friend, were talking. And then, you know, like I did this five times, and then I started thinking, like, I'd like to draw out a map of these loops and have, like, one loop be a verse. So you do it twice. And then make this, like, 12-minute track song or whatever of verse, chorus, verse, bridge, you know, stuff. But it's just oh, on, just it. a field recording, so that's 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 how I can still like get my 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 cool like creative sound fix while in kind of a, a nature setting or something. Totally, um, I've, I'm almost doing the opposite where we're getting into spring in California, and mm-hmm. the last few years springs here have been pretty blustery and windy, mm-hmm. and so I've decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to build some aeolian sculptures in my backyard with um, steel, wood, and music wire, which is oh, piano nice. wire, basically. And so I'll just put my field recorder out there and just record sometimes several hours during the day while I work and then go back through and pick out, you know, where's where's the wind saying interesting things. Whoa, you've um, already done this. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm, wow. I'm in the editing process right now of kind of getting those together and trying to figure out, is this a sound art album? Is it a the bed upon which something else will be placed. That's, yeah, um, that's kind of so. what I'm trying to figure out with this thing that I'm doing. Because I'm also doing this oh, thing huh. with Hannah where I'm filming her doing the sound recordings. And then, oh, cool. you know, one I, pro- I, I did one and I processed it through Strega. And I'm like, that's kind of interesting. And mm, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to wonder, do I write music over this? But it's just that, that constant search. And I feel like that has really been alive and invigorated in me lately this this artistic drive and i feel like i'm doing some of the best stuff i've ever done and been just so creatively charged um with the new year really which is i mean it started a little before that but like just kind of really hitting a stride with it um mm. i'm so glad yeah. to hear that because i i think that one thing that i that life's taught me is that that journey just never ends yeah you know we're we're all always changing and growing as people mm-hmm and so what we have to say and how we want to say it constantly changes, mm-hmm. even if we are just dedicated to one instrument like the cello or we are multi-instrumentalists. Um, and that's one of, the th- one, one of the realizations that kind of made my shoulders drop a little bit mm-hmm. and de-stressed me as an artist 
was that, you know, what's my voice? Well, it, it is what it is right now. Mm-hmm. It's always going to change. And I just am very happy to just kind of let, let my voice shift as my interests and, and, uh, and focus shifts as I, as I age. Yeah. And I think, I think having that approach to your kind of, however, that, that, that philosophical ideal or whatever that, whatever you would call what we're talking about, if you're cognizant, cognizant of that going into your artistic career or whatever it is you want to call your artistic journey, um, I think that's really useful because especially if you want it to become your job, I've heard so many people like it became my job and then I lost interest in it. But oh, I, f- yeah. I feel like I don't get that sense from you. This is, this is like has slowly become my job, but I'm finding new ways to quench this thirst and, and new ways of exploring it. That I think having that open-mindedness to the, the, the truth that everything is constantly in flux and to go with that rather than resist it kind of keeps things fresh. I don't know if that was very articulate. That's just kind of, no, that, that makes out. complete that makes complete sense to me. Um, one of the reasons why I'm building these, these weird wind sculptures in my backyard is that at the end of the day, after having mastered sometimes two to four albums in one day, <laughs> plus editing whatever audio I'm editing for podcasts or whatever it is, uh, my ears are tired. Yeah. And the last thing I, I have the presence of mind to do is sit down in front of the synthesizer. And so this allows me to kind of in parallel do some aleatoric recording mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then... You know, the editing process for me at the end of the day is something I'm I can slip into much more easily than a creation process at the end of a Definitely, of a tiring yeah. day. I'm actually I think I'm drawing some parallels between us because I spend so much time having these conversations, which I which I love, and then editing these conversations and then editing the demos and learning how to use these instruments that people send me to tell other people about. The last thing I do when I'm finished with that usually is want to make another patch for myself. So mm-hmm. I reset, but I still want to do something creative. So I think that's why video has become such an important mm. thing for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then the sound, the field recordings. So that's kind of, yeah, I just kind of figured that out. That's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, am I right in saying that? Like, I mean, you have a full giant system behind you. You have Buchla stuff. You have a bunch of Verbo stuff. You have, you know, you have every type of instrument you can think of. And then you go out and you make these sculptures, you know, it's like, it's not because you don't like these, but it's like, you're constantly on the search for that create, that creative spirit is constantly driving you, but you just want to switch up tools for a while. Cause these are, these are the work tools right now. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's like, it's like getting a new, it's like getting a new power tool or hammer. If you're a woodworker, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, it's like the, the tools we use creates, you know, shapes what we make and you know, through my, you know, uh, Etudes series, for example, mm-hmm. it's just like, let me try to make an entire album out of the smallest kind of instrument that I can get my hands on or configure. And now it's just a matter of like, what's going to come out of these wind recordings? I really don't know. Mm-hmm. It might just be the basis for something else. And I use 5% of it and it all gets jettisoned because it becomes a synth album. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> or, or I decide that it's going to be an, a sound art project and the purity of just sound from wind is the thing. Right. I just don't know. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes I go into a project with a lot more intent. But for me, the journey is absolutely every bit as important as the destination. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out how can I not just try something new, but how can I disrupt the processes I've used in the past to make sure I don't repeat myself? 
Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's really important. That's something I, I find myself. I think I've even mentioned it on the show. I I find myself wondering, like, you know, like a band that has a fifteen album arc over twenty years or something, and you you know they sound like the same band for twenty years. Like, I don't know that I could do that. I know I'm sure they a lot of them keep it up because it is their job and they have to. They can't lose their fans. But like, I'm just kind of like, I love Cake. But I don't know how Cake keep makes keeps making mm. Cake records because you could kind of like yeah. shuffle all those songs, and they would all sound like the same record. I don't know how. Yeah, that... totally. But and you know I respect that because there's a discipline there, right? Definitely, there's which a, I don't have. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a there's like a discipline and a a, a vision, mm-hmm. you know, and they're they're at the point now where they can probably all get in a room and kick out a song and at the end of it they'll know is this a cake song or not right right and yeah. it's not necessarily even like there's a formula maybe there is but there's a there's a confluence of emotions and vibe and instrumentation that makes it a, a cake album mm-hmm. or a cake song right and and i i have a lot of respect for that um but that's just generally how my um my personal creativity does not work that way right so do you still get creative fulfillment I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but out of mm-hmm. the, your more professional side of what you do, the mastering and the podcast work and stuff, like, does that still scratch an itch or is that kind of, has that become a little bit more of like, I don't want to, I'm not going to say that you don't like it or anything, but is it more of a, a work thing? Mm, like, like more of a intellectual versus an emotional yeah, yeah. kind of mm-hmm. task? Yeah. Um, it could, but it hasn't. Okay. Um, with with mastering, what I really like is working with people as yeah. much as it is working with music. Mm-hmm. And so every time I get a new client or a past client comes to me, it's all about like, who is this person? What are they about? What's driving what they're trying to say musically? And if it's a repeat client, you know, the joy of, you know, listening, being one of the first people to listen to someone's new album and hearing the differences mm-hmm. from the past one and being able to, uh, even though I, I don't sign people to a label, I get to see artists long-term development. I find that incredibly rewarding and I feel incredibly fortunate mm-hmm. to get these insights album to album as, as they progress. And as artists progress, my moment to moment decisions in mastering become harder and harder because people become better ma- mixers, uh-huh. <laughs> they become better record. Yeah, you know, I, w- I was about to say recording engineers, but they 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 record their music better the more they do it. And I I try to give as much feedback as possible when I do mastering projects, and so artists get better and better and better. And I have that challenge of actually having to do less and less and less, which is great. That's where we should be mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Is, is I, you know, the ideal perfect world is someone sends me an album, I listen to it, I try things, and I spend exactly the same amount of time as I would on something that needs obvious help. But at the end of the day, I turn everything off and say, no, I, I can't make this sound better. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'll, I'll gain it up a little bit, push it into a limiter, and that might be it. That might be all I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that happens pretty rarely, but when it does, I, it's, it's, it's actually a thrill because I'm hearing an artist or, you know, and, or their mixing engineer, if they're working with one at, you know, working at such a, such a level that I find that really inspiring. Yeah. And I learn new things from every album I listen to both as a fan and as a, 
mastering engineer and sometimes that goes back into my practice that's what i was gonna ask like oh i never thought to Mm -hmm. never thought to mix drums like that before you know right so i i just find it endlessly fascinating yeah you're kind of put in a unique position where you have to pay such close attention to other people's work that you probably you you definitely hear it differently than somebody even even a fan of it you know if a lot of people don't listen that intently um on like how was this mixed or that maybe more in kind of the world that we're in but um i can't imagine Mm -hmm. that doesn't affect your approach to your own stuff totally i mean i i every single project i hear something that someone is doing that i never would have considered Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like oh Oh, that's that's really unique and that's super cool. Not sure if I'd ever use it. Maybe I would sometime or maybe mm-hmm. not. But it's this constant musical lesson. And it's also incredibly humbling because most of the people I master are way better musicians than I am. <laughs> so, you know, it's just this it's always really humbling. Mm-hmm. I just did a a pop punk album for someone up in Seattle. And the way this person writes songs and lyrics, it's like I and, you know, verse and chorus and bridge with time signatures changing all over the place, um, but still keeping it very pop, but doing all these interesting production elements and arrangements. It's like, I, I can't step to that. I never could. In Seattle? And that's awesome. Can you like, say I don't who? Feel, yeah. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me okay, know. Fine. <laughs> actually, uh, I probably can. Is, is actually uh, an artist who's actually uh, in the game audio industry. His name's Jamie Bell. Okay. And he's announced a new album called Lydia. And it's uh, definitely more pop than I'm used to working on. But I, I, I tried to compliment him in an email. And I said, your, your guitar work sounds just like Brian May from Queen. <laughs> and meaning because like they're always hard panned and with these really clean, like, you know, uh, fifth intervals between left and right speaker. Uh-huh. And so it's got this kind of classic queen harmonization, but it's kind of a po- in a pump punk vein. Uh-huh. And he's like, Oh, I never thought about that. And I'm like, no, no, th- I'm not, this is not a disc. This is serious Uber compliment. <laughs> um, so that was just, that, but just hearing, hearing my clients function at such high musical levels is just, just wonderful. It's, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. Yeah. I kind of feel that way with getting to talk to, get you know so many cool people as well i get to talk to like for what i'm you know what i consider the cream of the crop in the music um and oh you know gosh. in our world totally. of music and uh yeah it's it's just it's uh it's it's just endless, endlessly inspiring and it it keeps me like on mm. it keeps me trying to stay on my a game i feel like which i like you mm-hmm. know like i'm not just plinking around i'm like if i'm going to yeah. put a a patch on the same episode as a Sarah Bell Reed patch, then I want to make sure that I'm trying my damnedest to make this as good as I can, you know? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that that's, that that feeds into inspiration because it's so easy to fall into imposter syndrome when you're confronted with people who are more talented with you in certain ways. Right. Yeah. And especially if it's, if, if, if you're, if you're a listener and you don't have the benefit of, working with an artist like I do as a mastering engineer or like you do spending hours, you know, chatting with people and getting to know them at a deeper level, you know, it's easy to hear a brilliant album and go, I suck. Oh, and I'm going to stop making music. Oh, every patch and challenge I get, I'm like, why do I keep struggle. doing this? 
<laughs> I think I've I think I've just and we all struggle. Every single one of us struggles with that. Yeah, because I still definitely have yeah, but serious it imposter syndrome. But I also just know that that's common, mm. and I know to ignore that side yep. of my brain because at the end. I don't want to, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of a life, enough, it doesn't matter. I, I'm not, I just don't want to be that precious about anything. Mm-hmm. Like, why? I, I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not going to approach it, you know, saying I am as good as anybody, but I'm not going to also be like, I mean, sometimes I get a little, you know, a little self-deprecating, but it's usually with a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a wry smile, you know, cracking out of the side of my face because I don't yeah. take myself well, too seriously. That's, that's how you avoid Exactly. That's how you avoid hubris. Right. 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 Exactly. Like you can't yeah. take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think how I've gotten around imposter syndrome really is focusing on not how well am I making music, but always trying to be as brutally honest as I can with myself as to why I'm making music at all. Totally. Yeah. And that reframing puts it into a different light where I'm not trying to ever compete with anyone on a musical level Mm -hmm. i'm just trying to express what i can as best as i can and when you start to really focus on why it is you you're doing this at all that just i find that kind of starts to melt away a lot of the imposter syndrome and you stop thinking about things quantitatively Mm -hmm. like i can't shred that fast my vibrato my cello isn't that isn't that smooth Mm -hmm. my uh ability to um uh, patch from scratch in real time is is really awkward and and I'm uncomfortable. It's like those are all qua- like quantitative measures. Totally. That frankly, in music and art, do not matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of my favorite bands are. I'm probably better at you know guitar than some of them, but you know, like, and I'm not that great at guitar. It's like <laughs> it's 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 so much more about just what you get get out of it. Um, and what you put into it. And I think mm-hmm. like we were talking earlier, um, not to sound like, you know, like, a, like a, a Buddhist Hallmark card, but like, it really is way more about the journey <laughs> for me these days. Like I, like oh, yeah. the other night, the full moon was, was coming up and, and we, there were birds out. So I had my field recorder and my, my video camera. And I was, I was like a little kid running between like running to between two toys that they wanted to play with. I was like, I would go and I'd start filming something and then the birds over here would make a cool noise and I'd be like, oh, I got to go get the field recorder. And, you know, at the end of the night, I'm like, oh, this is going to suck to pour through all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, I might not even pour through any of it. Like, it was fun Mm -hmm. doing it. Like, and it might not become anything. And that's something that's kind of new for me um, that I'm just so thankful that, that realization mm, that's is That's powerful, Tim. <laughs> that's really powerful. I, I, like two things that, that I just find really inspiring about, about that is, is, is ha- still ha- retaining that sense of play yes. when engaging in creative mm-hmm. activities and not looking at it at work and always kind of trying to have a playful uh, lens on it. And I agree. I, I often will go for fitness walks and it looks like I'm wearing, uh, wearing earbuds and listening to music. But I'm actually holding a field recorder in my hand, mm-hmm. and it's not recording. I'm just monitoring. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm using it like an audio microscope to like really change my perception about my environment. And I just listen to my environment for an hour while I walk. And your and your experience that really resonates with me of I'm gonna gen- I'm gonna ostensibly try to generate this media, 
I may not even go back through it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's in, in photo, in photojournalism, they call that F8 and be there. F8 you know, and like be there? F8, as in the, oh. the, the aperture. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So um, <laughs> there's, there, there's a school of journalism where, you know, if you're doing hardcore reportage and things are moving really quickly and you're trying to, like, you know, keep up with the action, but you don't want to always reset what your aperture is, uh -huh. there's, a, there's a formula you can use based on, like, how bright the sun is and what kind of film you're using and you just set your camera aperture to f8 and you just shoot uh-huh and you just don't worry about it because what you're after is the moment uh -huh, you're not definitely. you're not after the perfect resolution of the moment you're after the emotional narrative core of what you're experiencing that second and i think that is so so valuable for for what we do too definitely yeah yeah and you know like <sighs> I, I used to worry, like, am I capturing this moment? Am I capturing what I'm feeling right now? And I would be more worried about that, and then I'd stop feeling the thing that I was feeling. And then it was, oh, you know, it was just like you would kind of yeah. step on your own toes, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's, it sounds so simple to say all this out loud, and it sounds so obvious, but it just wasn't for me for a really long time. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I still loved... Obviously, I still loved making music because I was doing it, and, and it led me to this this place. But um, just losing that preciousness over things, I feel like this mm -hmm. has come up a few times in the last few episodes. Is this this idea of being super precious about everything that you create, and that's why I love this idea of you going out and making these wind sculptures and being like, this could be an album, or this could be thirty seconds of a song, you know. But you right. still went or, through, or it could be utter junk, right? Yeah, right. Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it could be exactly. utterly useless. <laughs> you got to send me a picture of this stuff. I, I've, I've, I've got a, I've got an idea in my mind, but I, I want to know what this looks like. <laughs> oh, it will win no beauty awards. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, I imagine if it makes cool noises, it probably, yeah, probably more function than form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but that's that's why like this whole you know do it yourself instrument thing is is well quote unquote instrument you right. barely call it an instrument mm -hmm. is like. Find something rigid that'll hold some wires up into the air when it's windy. <laughs> and then how many, how many wires do you want to add? That's going to you know, generate one harmonic per wire or one, one pitch fundamental per wire plus all the harmonics. So how are those going to add together? Do you care if they're in a scale or not? Or are you just after interesting tone? And right. Just, I don't right. know. I find it the, – the barrier to entry is so low. The penalty for failure is absolutely zero yeah yes yes you know i love that and i'll also love that this going the going into it with no expectation also makes it like just there's no risk there's no there's no risk the risk reward is so much more heavily weighted on the reward side mm, because mm -hmm. like i always tell my wife um i think this is this is the only if i was ever gonna like say I, I have a quote that I could quote myself is basically I just distilled some Buddhism. It's like expectation is the garden in which the seeds of sorrow are sown. I always, that's oh, become her gosh. and I's mark. Like we remind us, remind each other of that. Like, Oh, I thought this was going to be more like this. And then now we say that to each other and uh -huh. it's kind of like a good, like, <laughs> well, yeah, because we, we expected something and we, and we couldn't bend reality to our will. So 
what do you what do you expect is going to happen you know yeah um, yeah there is so much truth to that so much truth in that statement please pardon the interruption but this is uh our weekly mid-show break to remind you that if you would like to help keep the LEDs blinking over here at Podular Modcast please visit us at patreon.com forward slash Podular Modcast thank you Please enjoy this song called Ghost on the Hill by Suna off their new album called Tall. There's a link in the show description. I want to know, I want, because this is a podcast and you do a lot of work with podcasts, I want to talk about that work because it's also relevant to some soundtrack stuff that you um, have going on that you've recently released and will be, or I guess as of the time this is out, both will be released. Um, mm-hmm. But before, before we get into that specific project, I just want to talk about the work you do for podcasts and how much we were kind of chatting a little bit before we started recording it seems like that work has really picked up during the pandemic for, you know, for some interesting reasons, I think. So, yeah, uh, a lot of my clients in the podcasting space are coming from the entertainment industry, where certainly um, until relatively recently, if you were on a television show or a movie production, all that stuff was shut down. And so how do you either leverage your fame, leverage the story you're trying to tell, or just stay creatively busy? And there's definitely this angle on on kind of higher production podcasts these days where podcasting is really becoming more of a narrative prototyping phase for something that might turn into a television or uh, television or like documentary a spec or, or script or a, or a, or a pitch or something. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a recorded table read. Okay. Uh-huh, but with uh-huh. higher, higher production values. Mm-hmm. So, um, certainly most people think of podcasts as kind of what we're, we're doing right now two people talking and having mm-hmm. a conversation and, uh, tending to be around like a fairly specific topic, whether it's economics or modular synthesizers. Mm-hmm. And I do work like that, too, but I've also been doing some uh, sound design and actually uh, contract recording for some fictional podcasts, too, where uh, the production values are every bit as high as you'd have on a TV show or film. There's just no picture. Mm-hmm. And that still means that producing a super high-quality podcast is still one or two orders of magnitude cheaper than doing it for television or or film. Um and so that's been really fun and trying to figure out how much can you spatialize dialogue to be realistic and infer movement. Mm. So if someone – I'll demonstrate here. If someone moves slightly off mic and their vocal tone changes like mine is mm-hmm. and then they come back, um, can you process someone's voice to make it sound like that to infer that they're crossing the room or their back is turned to who they're talking to for a moment to pick up an object? Okay. And that might be written in a script, but you can't show it. So how do you tell – those story beats and those narrative moments with sound. And uh-huh. that's, that's been really uh, challenging so and exciting. On top of just having, you know, like your standard mixing mastering type stuff um, on these podcasts, you're also like doing sound design and sound spatialization. Like, so they'll send you a script 
I want mm-hmm. this to sound like what you just described. That's that that's super interesting. You know, it's really what yep. what I really like about that is it, it reminds. It's like it, it excites me of this like this 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 revival of people sitting around. You know, like the radio listening to War of the Worlds back in the day or something like like are are these just audio stories like i know they're they're pitches right now but like it's just kind of cool to think of them as something that people are into in this this time like the fact that podcasts are so popular and, and, right now and they are mm-hmm. i mean there are def- there are some hardcore fans of this sort of thing there's um like horror podcasts mm-hmm. are super popular right now um there are a lot of opportunities to spatialize uh, your mix using either binaural methods or even uh, recording in Atmos or mixing in Atmos, I should say. And then uh, some really high-end uh, podcasts before the pandemic were starting to premiere their podcast episodes in theaters with Atmos rigs. Oh, wow. That's cool. And then, of course, you, you know, it all gets uh, folded down to binaural uh, for, for headphones. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of people who are trying to push the envelope and you know binaural's been around for a long time. I remember having Stephen King's The Mist on cassette as a kid in the 80s and it was a binaural production. Oh wow, okay. And to to this day I actually haven't heard one that was as good. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you can always get like a little bit forward and a little bit behind, but you it's really hard to get this sense of someone walking around you and you can tell they are specifically in front of my nose and specifically behind my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the depth for um, front to back is still kind of shallow. Um, but you often find that sometimes using only one binaural source in an otherwise stereo standard stereo mix can really add some, add some spice to a scene. Yeah. Um, so, do you, I, I just, I'm so fast. I'm trying to formulate a question off of just this fascination that I have with just the idea that these people who were maybe, you know, either comedians who are touring or actors who are acting regularly in these things on set, that whole industry falls out from underneath everyone's feet for a year. And now they all, you know, I, I definitely see more people, more well-known people making their own podcasts because it's something that you can do safely in a pandemic. Um, I don't know. I just, I just find that so fascinating. And I wonder what that, the long-term effect that will have on podcasts, like are podcasts here to stay? Or are they like kind of a, a, a fad or something, you know, like there's kind of almost like a, a joke now, like everybody has a podcast, you know, um, which as a podcaster kind of hits a little too close to home it kind of uh, <laughs> you know like now that it's a joke when people say what do you do you know the last thing i want to do is be like i have a podcast um <laughs> yeah well not everyone has a podular podcast. yeah right right <laughs> i'm just saying yeah <laughs> the um it's it's tricky i mean it's like like all things in life the only constant is change right and so right now we're seeing podcasting kind of going the television route where certain networks are building walled gardens of content like Luminary, like Amazon Music. Um, uh, iHeartRadio tends to still broadcast to Stitcher and the kind of more public open platforms. Um, and so that's that's splitting listenership because if you're already paying $15 a month or however much it is now, $20 a month for, for Netflix and 
Hulu and FX Plus and uh-huh. Disney Plus. Are you going to add another one for uh, for podcasts? And pretty soon, everyone's going to be longing for the days they could pay a hundred bucks a month and actually just have freaking cable. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I think we're 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 past those days now. Um, but it's I, I think it's going to change once the pandemic uh, loosens up. I'm I'm going to guess, and this is totally just a guess. I'm going to guess a lot of the people who are using podcasting for storytelling purposes are going to go back into working in whatever media they were working in before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a little bit of attrition there. I I think that podcasts are so great because you can engage with them while doing something else. Right. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people do that with television, but you can't split your attention as effectively mm-hmm. as, you know, I can be in the garden listening to a sci-fi drama. Right. And like, right. I'll, I'll, my brain doesn't have to be engaged with, you know, shoveling compost. My brain's engaged with processing the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think it has a lot of strengths for that kind of, for that kind of thing. And I, I just hope that after the pandemic, um, people start taking way, way bigger risks with the medium. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trying to find ways to not just convey conversations and not just tell stories, but how can you give someone a really deeply immersive aural experience, um, in a way that might transcend or bleed across, you know, fiction versus interview versus whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think the people who started that, uh, with really aggressive sound design was of course, radio lab, mm-hmm. but if you look around right now, there's not a lot of people who are kind of pushing the envelope in terms of playfully confounding people's expectations of what a podcast should be. And I just wish that there was more of that. Yeah, I totally agree. That was one of the reasons I wanted to get into podcasting um, is so I could like goof off sometimes, like get to a point where I can do the the regular thing, but do like a, a Krampus guest host you know, special <laughs> Christmas episode or something like that. Um, those are still by like by far the least listened to episodes, but that's still some of the funnest ones for me to make is just messing around and doing a stupid character. And um, I just love like the DIY, like anything goes. And 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 one yep. of my hopes for this is kind of to kind of circle back to something we were talking about earlier is that that constantly feeling that muse and following it to new weird places. Like I've said from the beginning that I don't, I don't know how long this show will last and I don't know what the last episode will uh, versus the first episode, like how close they'll actually be. You know, um, I, I love the idea of just kind of pushing it and getting weirder and weirder and, um, maybe not even weird, but kind of, we were talking a little bit off, off mic earlier, but, um, you know, turning this into, uh, a, you know, a, like a travel doc where I, I travel around and, and do this in person mm. with people, but also play music with them and have a, a you know, like a, almost like a web series approach to it or something like that. So like, that's the current idea, but I wasn't thinking about that six months ago and I may not be thinking about it in another six months, but because I'm grounded in what we're doing right now, I have, I have this kind of lateral movement that I can experiment mm. with. And that's, what's really excite, exciting to me about this medium. And I think what excites me about that's like, that's why I was so excited about what you were saying is like these people using these podcasts is like pitches because they can't make pilots right now. And I yep. wonder how, because it is so much cheaper, like I wonder how, if it's successful right now, how much of that will, will stick around. Um, 
I don't know. This is getting very meta, I feel like. <laughs> We're on a podcast talking about what podcasts could be. <laughs> I, I listen to more podcasts like that than I care to admit. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Well, let's talk about this, um, this podcast that you've been scoring. You've got, you've got two. Um, I listened to both of them today. Um, two full-length like scores out of some really wild, fun, like generative, very sci-fi music. It's you've done a really something I've I've heard you do before. It's you've got a really good way of making something sound kind of classically sci-fi and synthy with adding a with it with bringing it right into a contemporary frame. Like this is like no one would listen to this and think it sound like would think it was really you know from the sixties or seventies or something, but you tip your hat to that in such a way that's a real joy to listen to. So, um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Could you tell us about this, this project? Yeah. So the podcast is called Hyperlab Omni and this dovetails perfectly into kind of the, the topic we were just discussing about, uh, kind of experimentalism mm -hmm. in the form of podcast and the, the podcast at its core is unbelievably deeply nerdy and which is why i love it so very very much you won't find that here <laughs> oh heaven <laughs> heaven for fend and the podcast is all about two guys digging through old issues of omni magazine and for listeners who might not remember omni magazine it was kind of like popular science but like yellow journalism style like they'd have articles about actual hardcore science. They'd have fiction pieces by some of the biggest names in science fiction writing at the time, and then articles about psychic phenomenon and paranormal and, like, not... Oh, not weird. What most people would not consider hard science. Uh -huh. And it was all published by uh, Mr. Penthouse himself, Bob Guccione. And uh, it was not the best of magazines, but... <laughs> um, the the podcast uh, hosts, uh, their names are Chad and Jason, loved how some of the stories and articles in there really ring true when you look at it in hindsight. And like, wow, some of these things they totally guessed correctly. Um, or maybe, you know, guessed correctly in spirit, but the language they used was a little strange. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, there was an article from 79 talking about how everyone in the future will listen to music through lasers. <laughs> but of course they were talking about at the time they were talking about um, people uh, using laser discs for audio and visual. And they, they were talking about the compact disc ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But then there are other things where just like, you know, stories with just rampant, unbelievable misogyny <laughs> and horrible, you know, non-politically correct attitudes Towards Wait, are you trying to tell me? You're trying to tell me that the guy who published Penthouse had, had a magazine in the '60s and '70s that was misogynistic and racist? No, it's it's really hard to believe, but it actually happened. Um, and some of the science articles just missed it by by a by a mile, uh -huh. and that's the whole. That's of course part of the charm. You you get enough distance, that becomes the charm of retrofuturism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like atomic age science fiction from the fifties and you know stuff like that. And uh, you could almost argue like kind of Star Wars put an end to retrofuturism because it wasn't really 
it was gritty and it was edgy and everything had this patina of use. So all of a sudden, like Star Wars became like, you know, this very kind of, uh, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Almost like a verite version of science fiction where mm-hmm. it's like, it's, there's a realism there that you kind of can't escape. Um, so that, of course, as you can imagine, when they asked me to um, create the score for a podcast like this, it meant a few things. It meant we have to lean hard into retrofuturism. And one thing that I've never really engaged with conceptually as a musician is nostalgia mm-hmm. or overt, really overtly referring to, you know, hey, I'm going to take what the San Francisco Tape Center did in the 60s and bring it up a little bit. I'm going to specifically refer to early 80s, new age, hearts of space kind of stuff and kind of pull that a little bit forward. So it was a fun opportunity to to really wear those those influences on my sleeve for a change, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was fun. Um, but the real problem was that they didn't want, usually, they didn't want to have story beats underscored by specific cues or specific compositional moments. What they wanted was underscore. So stuff that would play underneath them as they talked. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, fine. That's done all the time in podcasts. Uh, about how much music do you expect to need for an episode? And they said, oh, we, we're going to need music for every single minute or every single episode. <laughs> so I cranked my jaw up off the floor, put it back in place. <laughs> and I say, okay, how many episodes are we talking about? Oh, probably about 20. And then Nathan's like, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. nodding and smiling. Meanwhile, his fingers are opening up his calculator, doing the math. Yeah, yeah, I was just trying to do that math. That's hundreds of songs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's 10 hours, plus or minus two, of music. So, you know, I'm, I, I tend to look at everything as, as actually as a design challenge. Mm-hmm. So rather than saying 10 hours, that's impossible, I can't do it, I'm like, How? can I make 10 hours of music in a way that it won't just crush me and will be something that I'll feel good about and fits the show. Mm-hmm. You know, um, underscore also has to be very evocative, but it can't be uh, too active. Otherwise it will distract from what you're supposed to be hearing over it, but it also needs to thematically uh, under underpin the, the stories that they're telling. So, so after a couple of days of hand-wringing, I just kind of realized, like, oh, I could write modular, generative modular patches. And what if I could score the show that way? And so I was reading the... I asked for a brief, and they gave me a brief. And the, the two things I always will... I'll never forget about the brief was, on the one hand, they said, we need kind of two flavors of music. One evokes kind of the the cold hard well three actually one evokes the cold hard nature of just space mm-hmm. asteroids comets planets black holes nebulae everything in between and spaceships mm-hmm. that kind of thing another needs to be focused on like machine intelligence and artificial intelligence and what might the melodic dreams of an ai be like gee set the bar a little higher guys <laughs> and then the third one was was you know the the untapped possibilities of the of the human mind, mm-hmm. and so that kind of hit on the hard science, the science fiction, and the paranormal uh, 
quote unquote reporting uh-huh. <laughs> that Omni kind of uh-huh. had as that was like their, their, their three legged stool of narrative for that magazine. And so I was like, okay, well, let's do, let's break this down. How would I approach this? And I kind of quickly came up with a language of West Coast transient heavy synthesis can be kind of the, the galactic freakout stuff. Generative melodies can be kind of the machine learning stuff. And then rich polysynth whatever can be uh, kind of the untapped potential of the human mind and psychic powers and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so I started just making like one sketch for each of those uh, for, you know, using uh, mostly generative systems. Uh, creating the theme song, of course, was traditional because it had to have a melody you'd remember. And mm-hmm. that was pretty traditionally composed and uh and i shared the sketches with them and they were just like oh this is this is great tilt this a little this way tilt this a little that way and we were off to the races and i think at this point i'm at like 42 tracks ranging from seven minutes to 25 minutes in length wow wow and that's about 10 hours of of material Uh uh-huh so that's how that that's how uh that come about i gotta interrupt sorry to interrupt you i i just have to say that like that was such a brilliant solution to that problem that popped up. Like the, I need to make this much music. Like the, that's all. I, yeah. That's all I can say without like being too like gushy about that. <laughs> well, but that just, was such a good idea. A <laughs> well, I mean, as a, as a composer, you've got to like, you often get these like kind of impossible tasks. You're like, how am I going to get this done? Mm-hmm. You know, like, Oh, you need to create something that sounds kind of 12th century Arabic. And it's like, okay, how am I going to get that done? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the answer is sometimes like, you know, it's a combination of research and hiring actual musicians uh, to inform, you know, your, your uh, key choices and, you know, writing for certain instruments and in, in whatever genre you're, you're working in. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a matter of like, you know, how, how can I adapt to what I know how to do to the project parameters? That is so cool. And if it hadn't worked, I'd still be writing music. Right, but. right. <laughs> well, you know what I think would be like where we're coming in on an hour, but if you have a little bit more time, I would love to maybe just have you kind of briefly explain what a generative patch is to you and then maybe some of the techniques you use to go out about creating them because I, I see a lot on forums and in my Discord channel, people talking about it, and it seems to be a term that is mu- used more often than understood. Um, so yeah, if you have some time to kind of talk about that, I think that would be really cool. Definitely. And so that's, I'm really glad you brought up how a lot of people define that differently. And I think that's okay. Uh, cause it can, these things can mean different things to different people. Um, in my case, it was entirely Another way to put it is that it was entirely analog, largely self-playing patches, Mm -hmm. but patches that would evolve based on systems of musical events that I kind of wound up wiring together and then kind of just let it run. Um, One aspect of how I interacted with these patches is that, you know, a true generative or self-playing patch, you don't have to touch and it just evolves on its own. And with this one, I had to rein it in a little bit because, again, of the function narratively that it's providing. It's underscore. It needs to underpin the tone and the vibe of the story they're telling, but it can't get too forward mm-hmm. in in the mix or in your kind of mental uh, 
your mental engagement with a story. So what I tried to always do is kind of simplify a patch down to where I could control the patch with maybe two attenuators. And I would just ride those attenuators over the course of a patch mm-hmm. playing. Sometimes I would intercede more and inject other events into the system, whether I'm manually triggering them or changing timing parameters and stuff like that. Um, but as you can imagine, in a modular uh, context, that means there's kind of a set of techniques and modules that often come to play for this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, certainly, random voltage generators are critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that listeners will notice about the albums is that they tend to be actually quite melodic. And there are atonal freakouts here and there. Uh, so most of this stuff was run through um, quantizers. Mm-hmm. And then I, I lost track of how many sample and holds I had per <laughs> patch. And um, the, what I love using sample and holds for in this context is transposing sequences. Mm. So I can transpose just one line. I can transpose multiple lines at the same time, but at different voltages because sample and hold is inherently random mm-hmm. uh, or somewhat random depending on what source you're sampling from. And so that way, if I want there to be a section change, I might know, might not know how that section might change. One might go up, one, one melody might uh, get transposed up, one might get transposed down, the both might get transposed up but mm-hmm. by uneven amounts. Um, so there was a lot of that at play. Uh, comparators are such a godsend where you send two signals in and based on which is higher or lower either you get a derivative voltage or gate events coming out. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great way to generate uh, musical events that can be timed if you send two sample and holds into a comparator or happen at random intervals if you're sending two unsynced LFOs into a comparator. So that was really handy. Um, because of my Buchla background, I've got a verbose random sampling. That was kind of the random data heart of the whole piece. And so I uh, also use the analog shift register on that one as well Okay, quite a bit. And so I would wind up just kind of creating these things. And sometimes I'd let them run for an hour or two interceding every once in a while and then just edit it down to the most interesting 30 minutes, most interesting 10 minutes. Um, but it was a very, very efficient way to work. And I had everything downstream of the signal in terms of going through a mixer, going into a very light touch compressor, and then into a couple of microphone preamps before it goes into the interface. Mm -hmm. That was the same all the time. So everything always had kind of the same sonic stamp Mm -hmm. and fingerprint. So all the songs didn't sound that different from one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was kind of the, the core of the kinds of patches I would make and some of the modules I used. Okay. That sounds kind of like... I feel like it's, it was a solution to a problem, but I could see that having like an added benefit of, well, I'm going to record this for two hours. I'm just going to mute that. And I'm going to go work on something else because I, I know you've got other shit to work on. So <laughs> <laughs> you can hit record for two hours, work on something else, and maybe check in on that on coffee breaks or something. Oh, I literally <laughs> did that on this project. <laughs> I like both things. Uh-huh. So I was I had a... A, a generative thing cranking on the modular. I just let that roll. And then I roll back to my other desk, pull out my keyboard tray, and I know that, oh, well, here's a cue where actually it needs to be in a certain style. Like one piece that we did 
that isn't on the soundtracks because um, it didn't quite fit texturally was there was a story that was very much in the vein of that 1970s uh, paranoid thriller kind of thing, like the mm-hmm. Parallax View and the French Connection and mm-hmm. films like that. And so I was sitting here with with virtual instruments composing something with horns and jazz flutes and, you know, funk drums uh-huh. and, uh, and, and uh, violins and organ. So I could do that while, like, the space freakout <laughs> stuff was happening over here. So even on this project, I was literally composing two pieces <laughs> at once sometimes. <laughs> I love that. That's so. That's like that is that's economical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you you gave a few hints there. For, I'm trying to think of like, okay, say somebody's listening right now, and they've got a six U system, and they they want to explore generative patching, like, you know, sample and hold, obviously huge, random, huge. Um, comparators you mentioned, I think switches, you know. Switches, oh, God, are, switches are huge for that. But is there any, like, what else could you recommend for maybe somebody who doesn't have as much stuff as, as you do in your, in your studio, like maybe a little smaller system? What, what can they focus in on to kind of start experimenting with different generative uh, techniques? I'm going to answer that <laughs> by not answering it. Um, <laughs> it's a hard question. The, be- <laughs> the best answer to that, honestly, is one of um, Mylar Melody's most recent videos on making generative music in a small system. And oh, guess cool. what? It's a six year system. Uh-huh. And um, Alex, AKA Mylar, Mylar uh-huh. Melodies, rightly so is a huge fan of the Turing machine. Yes. And I this w- is also mm-hmm. a big part of uh, Surgeon's live techno sets as well, or, or has been in the past. And so you can do a whole lot with a Turing machine and maybe one or two expanders mm-hmm. because then you can get random voltages that you can lock into place when you, so it's almost like sampling. You almost kind of sample and hold this entire sequence. Uh, You can generate randomized pulses as well, because really what you want are you want voltages that drive pitch, whether they're quantized or not, it's up to the artist, right? Mm -hmm. And then you need events like gates and triggers to uh, either uh, run a clock or fire off envelopes and so I think that that's kind of, that would be the core. Another one actually would be um, if you have the space, but you don't have a dedicated random module. I, I actually still think the classic woggle bug by make right now made by make noise mm-hmm. um, is still an absolute classic because it's random uh, gates can still be tempo synced. Okay. Which is a really nice feature. Like yeah. the, the verbalist won't even do that. Okay. Um, so those, those would be things for people with smaller systems, I think, would, that would be really powerful to explore. The last tip I would also give is the manufacturer from Eastern Europe, Lodic. Okay. L-A-D-I-K. And Lodic's shtick is top-notch build quality, bizarrely cheap prices, and almost everything is 4 HP. Okay. And so it's very well-made, but still very compact in terms of space. So he makes switches and comparators and like a lot of the guts that we've been talking about in very small, very, very well-made form factors. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but Music to Come Down To, my album that you mastered, every single melody was written with Turing Machine and then the Volts Expander 
both controlling different quantized doing different melodies and then locking I, up, locking in what I, I wanted every single I one. totally didn't know that yeah, every single melody oh, wow <laughs> so yeah you're 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 preaching to the choir with the with the Turing machine <laughs> and the expanders and then to further oh, that's super cool yeah I just I I don't like writing sequences I like listening to sequences and locking in on ones that I like um, whether it's voltage for you know CV or for for pitch. Um, and then the, uh, I don't know, have you messed with the, the Benjolin V2? Ooh, I used to own a V1. I've never owned a V2. So the V2s, you can use those Turing machine expanders with. So oh, that becomes nice. a random, actually just th- those expanders and that module itself, you can do generative stuff without anything else, pretty kind of. It's it's pretty wild. Wow. But, oh, um, man. I, that's, that is a, the, the V1 anyway, that was a module I still to this day regret having sold. That thing is just it's a crazy cool. unique and really sounds great. Yeah. If you, if, and, and the cool, I don't know if the V1s did this, but the V2, you can get so low in frequency that it becomes a voltage source. And there's cross modulation mm. and with those expanders. Um, yes, I advertise for after later, but I also just absolutely love this. If it comes up in conversation that's not an ad, it's because I genuinely <laughs> love this thing. Um, I try not to bring ads into conversations, but um, I feel like I need to clarify that just so people no, I mean, like, stop the, shilling the, for after later. But no, I love this thing. <laughs> I love this thing. <laughs> no, that's, that, that is a totally legit um, suggestion, especially the, the V2, I think, corrected a lot of things that the original design really had... Uh, struggled with so that's a really exciting module i haven't i just haven't gotten the hands on it yet and for anybody who's wondering um rob hordyke was involved with after later on making that so um yeah well um geez i don't want to take up too much more of your time but i i love i mean if, if we got nathan moody in the house who's willing to share tips on on generative patching i feel like i can't squander that opportunity um (laughs) is there anything else that's popped in your head while we're talking about it i think those i mean i think especially for a small system i think we really hit it on the head with the the turing machine and expanders but yeah i i think that um the the key is really thinking about creating a musical event model is kind of the probably how i've come to terms with enjoying generative patching or self or creating self-playing patches Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is really not that different than composing in any other way. So, like, here's the texture I want. I want it to sound like bubbles. Okay, well, what are the characteristics of bubbles? And I might actually go on freaking YouTube and watch (laughs) ASMR videos about how the bubbles sound. You know, whatever Uh it takes. And then it's just about, okay, well, what are are the patterns or anti-patterns I'm hearing? And then what would be a way to kink and modulate random randomized uh, control voltage to either generate those pitches or generate those uh, amplitude events. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are they transient heavy? Do they, are they, are they really smooth and round? And so uh, I found that for really expressive envelopes, for example, another great trick is to send your control voltages through a filter and modulate the filter cutoff. Oh, I've never thought about so, that. So how so is that different have, from a, like just sending it through like a VCA or attenuator or something? Well, an attenuator is just going to take the the highest level and sometimes maybe the lowest level and shift that up and down. Mm-hmm. And uh, throwing it through a VCA will either shift the whole thing down in terms of 
its maximum amplitude or amplify it up if it's an amplifying BCA. Mm -hmm. um, what a filter will do is it will literally shave off part of the waveform if it's a if we assume it's a low pass filter. Mm -hmm. So if you send say a triangle wave in, you can derive a, a sine from it. And if you send it a kinked waveform, that's pretty crazy and strange. It will just round it off. Mm -hmm. And so if you send that in that envelope into a VCA, it can be an, a neat way uh, for those who have envelope banks, like say, um, like the Quadra, for example, mm -hmm. without the expander, where you can't really change or alter that much about the envelopes. Um, send one or two of them through a filter and then modulate the filter cutoff. And then the, 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 the shape of the attack and release can be modified um, in terms of how quickly it reaches those peaks and how quickly it falls off. Okay. So that can be a fun, a fun technique as well. So definitely it's one of those like modulators, modulating the modulators, uh -huh, right, right. sequencers, you know, modulating sequencers. Mm -hmm. um, when you get into that world and you start thinking control voltage first, instead of audible voice first, mm -hmm. that can really be an exciting thing to, to even give yourself as a, as a patch uh, challenge. That's something I feel like you hit two things on the head just now that I think are really important. Um, or, well, one is just really, I really resonated with, and, and that's the, the more experience I've gained as a modular synthesis, the more my um, excitement and uh, attention is focused from... This, like what it sounds like to the control voltage trying to get like get to sound like i'm i'm obsessed with control voltage modules now um and i forgot the other thing you said something reminded <laughs> me of something and it was really good control oh, voltage took over my life i think the uh the thing you're talking about you and passing control voltage through a filter just the spirit of that technique is kind of underscores kind of like the whole thing of modular is is step outside of the box and try to use something that you use all the time in a way that you've never used it. Like, like if you're always using this oscillator for audio, see if you can use it as a control voltage or vice versa, you know? And I think you can find really interesting, you know, a lot of the times it's not as cool as you hoped it would be. Um, you know, it's the whole expectation thing, but sometimes it really, you really knock something out of the park and you find a new technique. That's really fun. Yep, absolutely. And and you'll you'll listen to um the the soundtracks for Hyperlab Omni and you will hear how utterly addicted I am to frequency shifting. <laughs> I I just like people talk about reverb and delay. Yeah, that's fine. And then you got this other tier which is like below that you've got chorus and phasing. Uh-huh. You know, and that's cool. And I would almost argue flanging is below that. <laughs> and then below flanging is frequency shifting. And it in, in, in terms of of effects that people just don't usually have in their rack and, and reach for. Mm -hmm. But for me, phasing, uh, there's actually a song on one of the soundtracks called Set Flangers to Stun. Uh, <laughs> there's, um, and uh, I, I just love frequency shifters for uh, both generating low frequency, weird waveform, weird controlled voltages, mm -hmm. but I also use them all the time for deeply complex percussive voices. Okay. Because they can be very metallic and inharmonic with lots of sidebands, kind of like ring modulators. Uh -huh. But frequency shifters just have a very different tone to them. And that's, that's been something that I just I can't get enough of uh, in the last several years is really abusing um, both 
nowadays uh, abusing both frequency shifters and even phasers. I was as, just looking as at percussive elements. I was just yeah. looking at that. Was it Chimaniac or something like that? The that's the one I got. Is it? Yep. it look, that Freaking thing. Freaking love it that thing. Sounds really good. But then I'm like, it sounds so good. It's like, when am I going to use a phaser? But I don't know. I was listening to it and I was like, yeah. I would just sit here and like turn turn it and just be like, like ASMR oh for me, just like. Whoosh. Like, <laughs> it has it has a switch labeled stoned. I'm like, why would I ever turn this off? <laughs> Wait, is it one stoned and one? What's the other one? Like fade it. It's uh, like another like. <laughs> sorry, uh, Nathan's le- leaning away from the mic, looking at his comedian right now. Uh, I think it's stoned and plastic. Stoned and wasted. I stoned think. and wasted. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Well, is there anything you'd like to shout from the modular mountaintops before before I let you have the rest of your day? <laughs> I really appreciate your time. <laughs> oh my God, Tim, this is always such a pleasure to chat Absolutely. with you. These are really really fun sessions for me, and I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm not on the mountaintop, man. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm still climbing Mount Modular like everybody else, and uh, I leave I leave I leave pads and ropes where I can behind me. Yeah, and I look and I look for those paths and ropes from people who are ahead of me so absolutely that's that's maybe the best answer to that question i've got so far and where do you want to point people i mean obviously the new the new records nathan moody is that just nathan moody Bandcamp or is it noise jockey yep. or yeah so uh the the soundtracks for hyperlab omni volumes one and two are available at nathanmoody.bandcamp.com uh digital only so far and exclusive to Bandcamp. so you will not find those on streaming services okay and then um, keep your eyes peeled in about another month. There's something brand new coming on 180-gram vinyl that is, as usual for me, very different from the last few things I've released. <laughs> and uh, that'll be dark and weird and almost no sense on it at all. So that'll be fun, too. I look forward to that. And I also look forward to this wind thing that you're working on. I can't wait to see what <laughs> happens with that. Um, if you see no wind releases from me in the next two years, <laughs> it means it didn't work. <laughs> And that's okay. I'm going to be totally okay with it. Um, and also, I just, I'll just i throw a plug out there for you. If, if you're out there and you have an album that needs mastered, um, get a hold of, of Nathan over at Obsidian Sound. I'll put links to all your stuff in the show description for the listener thank if you. they want to follow up. And again, thank, thank you. you so much. This is a bl- Oh, i got to give you a patch challenge, and then you can send me a patch later. Yeah, don't leave, don't leave me hanging on a patch challenge. And you're going to do a generative patch challenge, right? Yeah, tell you what, I'm, I'm going to do this... I'm not Let's sure see. how yet because I don't know what's <laughs> going to be generated, but um, I will I will commit to doing this where I try to make a fairly evolving patch that either is entirely self playing or I uh, only uh, intercede with just one attenuator. Okay, to change it, I like that. I like that. Ooh, hieroglyph- hieroglyphic explosions. <gasps> I love it. That's pretty cool. Hieroglyphic explosions. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then, uh, yeah, I'll just plug that in right here. And that's where our recording will end. Okay, that's our chat. Now let's listen to Nathan Moody's Hieroglyphic Explosion. Thank you. 
That's our show. You know the drill. All the links are in the show description. Let's just end this lovely episode on uh, this track from the new Animals at Night EP called Swimming in the Ice Arena. Until next week. <laughs>